This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Hampton Carney, and he's the CEO and owner of Paul Wilmot Communications. Hampton, hello. Hey, Ariel. We've had a number of adventures together over the years, and I find that so many of these shows open with me saying that because there's people who have had all these relationships with, never had a public conversation with them. You know, there's never a chance on a blogtowatch.com to write about Hampton's new watches because you are, you know, you are a, a, a PR agency. But I'm just trying to think, how long have we been working together? It's been over a decade, right? Oh, well over a decade, Ariel. I mean, I started in 1997 working in the watch industry with uh, with our, our first luxury watch client at the agency. And I had just... I just accepted a job as an account executive. So that goes back, what, 25 years? And then I remember when you were first on the scene, which would have been not too long after that. It was 2007, so 10 years into it. So 10 years into it. And then, I mean, so we're we're 15 years friends in the watch industry. Yeah, I mean, you've sort of always been around. And that's very nice because I think you'll agree that in this space, um, the term we always like to use is musical chairs that people sort of move around. But consistency in job positions is is uncommon. Wouldn't you agree? I would completely agree. Why, why is that? Why is this such a migratory industry, in your opinion? Well, I, you know, for, for many reasons, I believe. I mean, number one is, you know, people, uh, like, they're not so um, committed to any one brand. I think they like the opportunity to, uh, opportunity to, to get to know a, another brand. So they'll move from one to the next or maybe they're working their way to their goal, which is, you know, X brand. And it, and they have to go take a few steps uh, with different brands to get to that, to their ultimate, you know, the position that they ultimately want. So I think it's some of that. And then I think, you know, you know, this is a, this is a labor intensive industry. And I think people, you know, some people just say, you know, I'm, I'm burned out. I want to move on to something else. Maybe it's, maybe they have a passion for a, a different um, sector of the luxury industry it could be beauty, could be fashion, and they want to, you know, they want to move out of the out of the watch space. So, I think a lot of reasons that people that, that makes sense. Again, you're as you're saying, there's a lot of reasons that have little to do with practical things, more aspirational, maybe egotistical. Um, you know that that have to do with where people work and and what they do in this space. Is you know you've worked in other industries as well. I, this was. Outside of law, this is sort of the first in, in, in a real major industry I've worked in. Is the watch industry similar to the other segments in the luxury industry or in consumer goods, or is it own special little microcosm, which sometimes it seems like? I think it is. It's unique unto itself. Um, I think the watch industry is very special. It, it is a, a tight-knit community of people, and while um, a lot of brands compete with one another for, you know, case space or or uh, press coverage i think generally everybody gets along i mean we all have to spend so much time together in geneva used to be basel and i think we i think we generally have fun with one another uh you know in from from a public relations point of view which is my specialty i i mean i love working with all the media and they they've come to really enjoy one another you know you think about all these trips they go on together and it's you know, if you don't get along, 
then is, you're, you're not going to have much fun on the press trip because you'll you, you, there's a good chance you might be sitting next to somebody. <laughs> so you better you better be friendly with them. So that's that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, being sort of like a good party planner is a, is a big part of uh, your job. But I want to get even more fundamental here and and talk about some of the reasons, like what it is you sort of do. Because when I came into this and I started being, you know, a real member of the watch media, I started working with PR firms, third-party companies that seemed to do a lot for watch brands, ranging from writing press releases to arranging um, meetings, hosting events, sometimes working on advertising and marketing. I mean, try to explain to someone that doesn't really get it why why is the PR firm um, so integral in the running of the modern watch industry, whereas in a lot of other industries, it's an arm of things, but it's not like required. It's like you can't have a modern watch industry without the PR firm. Why is that? Well, I mean, I'm grateful that we play a part in, you know, in the industry. I mean, I think we bring a lot of value to the table, um, specifically from a, you know, from a PR agency point of view. I mean, it's, uh, you know, having the, the, the great fortune of representing, you know, quite a few brands right now, we always say two's a conflict, you know, three's a practice. I know you'll understand that from your days as, <laughs> as a lawyer, but, um, you know, we, we bring, I think, um, a point of view that is maybe not so uh, trapped between the, the walls of the manufacturer, the walls of their offices. We, we, we see things, we see a lot more um, being uh, more generalist in the public relations space. And we can bring that sort of perspective to, you know, anything that we're working on, it, be it a press release, be it a event, as you said, or, you know, just organizing a dinner for a watch lunch we i think we bring um you know a, another voice to the table that is that it, that it there's a little bit from the outside that i i like to think um makes the overall um event or whatever that is uh, a little bit better now i'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit here and i say this as someone who is very supportive of what you do but why can't the brands do this function themselves you know I, that's a great question and i always say um, to, to people that ask that question. So say you're somebody at uh, a magazine and you, you, you get an email from a person at a brand. Well, you know exactly what that person's asking for. You know, you, it's going to be, you know, can you, can you put my newest watch in your magazine? But if, if you get a call from an agency, they don't know who, what you're, what you're emailing or calling them for. It could be, could be any one of your 30s, 30 odd clients. And I think that, that, that hopefully is, uh, uh gives them a, a good reason to, to get back to you very quickly because they don't know what you're calling for. Another reason I think that uh, the PR agency, uh, role, the, our, our function is really based on our relationships. I mean, you look at our, who, who are our contacts? We, we, we pride ourselves in, in very, personal really friendships with the media and that's truly what they are and i think that as a you know having developed those over the the 25 years of, of of having the agency or being at the agency those relationships can't be you know easily built by some new you know junior publicist inside a brand you know as i'm listening to you discuss that what comes to mind is that you're kind of describing sales. You're not technically selling something in the sense that you're asking the person who signed you for money, 
but you're selling them the idea of, of a client, of a story. Would that be sort of too out of bounds to describe what the role of a PR person is as being uh, like a quasi salesperson? Well, I mean, it's certainly a, a, um, a part of it. I think the other part of it, which you alluded to, is really the storytelling. I mean, you know, m- when I do my job well, it's typically over uh, a meal with an editor telling him the the six reasons or five reasons why this brand is so amazing and why he or she should be covering it in their media outlet. Um, and I guess that's a little bit sales, but it's a little bit about, you know, building pedestals for, for our clients' statues. We, you know, we try to build the biggest pedestal we possibly can because it makes the statue more important. Now, we're, we're talking, of course, in, in, I'll call them sometimes platitudes and things like that. But again, it's really difficult for some people to understand the sort of core job function. A, a brand comes out with a new product and they call you up and they say, okay, you're our, you're our agency. Because again, in, in a lot of other industries, PR agencies are mostly responsive, meaning they're there to field requests and to discuss. In the watch space, PR is a lot more assertive where you go out there and you communicate um, to people who aren't even talking to you. And so I think it's really important to clarify that public relations is is almost an ambiguous term in the scope of what that means in the watch space. Do you agree? I, I would agree. Uh, I'll go back to your sales analogy. I mean, you know, it, the watch industry, as, as we all love it, is very competitive. There are a lot of brands out there competing for space in the media outlets. And, you know, one of our, our jobs is, as you put it, as a salesperson, really, I like to say storyteller, is to keep on knocking on those doors. I mean, if you're not knocking, no one's going to know you're at the front door. Um, so we, it, we, one of our functions really is to facilitate and make it easy for the media to cover our, our clients' um, products. If you, if you, and if you don't stay, uh, you know, on their radar, you know, they, they, I don't, I always say to the clients, you know, Let's just say Errol Adams is a wake up thinking about XYZ brand. He has to, you know, he may be thinking about ABC brand, but he's, you know, he may he need to be reminded about XYZ. So, you know, it's, our function really is to continue, continually follow up with the media and make sure that they're aware of all the new stuff coming out from each client's, you know, uh, range of products. Now, why don't you mention some of the brands that you, you represent? We're sort of speaking of some vagaries right now. Talk about the brands that you represent now and the brands that you, you have represented. Because your agency, as you said, has become a specialist. Like, you are a go-to agency. And that's what I think is important about this discussion um, with Hampton, is that his firm is responsible for so much of the luxury watch brand messaging, which occurs in the United States. Like, you sort of are the the de facto king of that area. Like, you know, just just talk about your clients and then also maybe how did you get to that position? Well, <clears throat> that's a huge compliment. Thank you for that. Um, and, I, I, and, I, and I do think that we have become one of the players in the space for sure. We have some, some great uh, other agencies here and even based in New York and, and elsewhere that we, that we actually are super friendly with who, who do a good job as well. But it's a real compliment coming from you that you think we're one of the top. I mean... You know, currently we have quite a few brands um, in our roster. We're, we're, we're fortunate to be representing Hublot, I mean, Tag Heuer, Ulysse Nardin, 
Bramont and Maurice Lacroix in the luxury space. And then we have Luminox and Young Hans and we have um, Mundane as well. Um, so it's it's a really nice um, group of brands that we're currently representing. And I feel very fortunate to be um, partnered with each one for, for different reasons because they're, you know, they each have a, their own sort of um, position in the industry. Do you select clients or do they select you? Like, how does how does that work exactly? Because again, there's a lot of watch brands out there. You have an interesting assortment. You obviously have a very good relationship with the LVMH group and their brands. But like, again, I'm just, I, I, I want as much inside baseball here as possible because from the <laughs> outside, it can be so confusing. Why does a brand work with this agency? Why does this agency work with this brand? You know, it's like, it's, it, it, yes, of course, it's a, is it just about relationships and like we get along with these people or is it, is it deeper than that? Well, I think, no, it's a little bit of that for sure. I mean, I always think, you know, if if you, you need to get along with your client in order to, to, to function, you know, we can't, we can't be at odds. We have to be on the same side of the table. But I think the reason that we've been um, successful in the space is really the relationships we've built with, with the media. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of, you know, plus, you know, I, I come to this as a, a true uh, watch collector and I'm someone who's very, very passionate about watches and watch collecting. I, you know, I have a collection that I've built now since, you know, I was 18 years old that I'm, you know, really proud of. Um, so I, I, it's for me, it's, it's a passion more than just a job. I mean, and I hope that I bring that passion to the work that we're doing with our clients. I mean, and I, and I, you know, you, you think about it like children, you know, you, you can, you can't choose your favorite child. I mean, maybe somebody could, I can't, I, they're all, you know, they all feel like my children and I'm all, you know, passionate about each one for different reasons. Um, but it's real, a real pleasure, um, to be able to have this group of, of, of brands, watch brands, you know, within the agency's client portfolio right now. And, and, you know, as, um, cause we've known each other for so long, we've, we've worked with other brands as well. And, you know, I think that one step led to the next step, which led to the next step. And we just developed a, you know, a reputation for having these great relationships with the media. And sometimes, you know, clients come and knock at our door because of, you know, a, some an editor, uh, a watch editor says, oh, you want to work with, with these guys because, because we built that relationship and trust. Now, you said that you're a watch lover, which is something I want to talk about a little bit later in the show. But practically speaking... How has that made you better at your job representing watch brands? And I think that's really important to mention because a lot of PR agencies that have worked with watches that are not specialists tend to not do a very good job. It's like brands are always excited about fresh meat. Oh, we're going to get some new agency and they're going to work super hard. But then they work with people that don't know watches and a lot of terrible things about them. I mean, I could write a dissertation on PR fumbles that I've seen over the years. You know what I mean? Um, right. How has that made your game that much better because again it is not a default situation that you represent a client whose products you personally love well i mean i mean we 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 know um because we are in this industry that watches are very unique i mean it it they have uh there's a there's a vernacular there's a language that is used to describe a watch um, and if you are coming into it as a, as let's say a new person, a layman, and you don't know the terminology, there's a, there's a degree of onboarding that you need just to be able to speak the language. And we, I like to think that we have, you know, we're 
fluent in watch. Um, and I think as a collector, I, I like to think as a collector that I understand where in the hierarchy of watches where our, our, our clients fit. And then, um, because, you know, as a, you know, you know, you know, you, you have vintage, you have second, you're pre-owned and all these, where, what the value is, what the, what the value proposition is. And, and I like to think that we, that we create strategies for each brand that are unique to them and that um, are aligned with their goals. And, and, and then we just get to work. Um, but like I said, you know, we just, we come to it like, you know, we're not freshmen. We're, we're, you know, we're probably seniors in college at this point, you know, in our, in our learning curve. Do, do you talk to them more as sort of the mature adult in the room? Because I know that, like you said, you have that experience. You've, you've been down that rabbit hole many, many times. Is it helpful when you're talking to a watch brand, especially since their managers could be insecure at times to be like, we've done this before, you know, we got this, we, we, you know, we know what more, what to expect than you, or is it, is it still more, you're the boss, you know what's going on, we're just here to serve you. Well, it's it, it's it's a bit both. Let's be honest. I mean, sometimes you know that we may say not a good idea to do this at that at this particular time, and if the client says, um, "Sorry, we're going ahead with it," we'll we fall in line. I mean, we know how to take orders um, from a, from a client, but the you know we love to counsel with them and give them best advice and best practices based on. 25 years of working in the watch industry. And when we, we find that when they do take our advice or we tweak it just by a degree or so based on, on our experience, that we have a better outcome. It's, it, it is like 10 out of 10. Okay, so you, you, you got to give some like real world stories here. What are some ideas that watch brands have come to you with and you've thought about it and you're like, you know what? I appreciate you trying to come up with something new. But that's really an awful idea. I can't let you do that. Do this instead. Like, what are some examples of their awful ideas? <laughs> you know, you got to give me I, that, that. I got to, you know, I've got, I have to go it'll back. It'll come to you. I'm think, you're thinking yeah. about it now and it'll, it'll, it'll come to you in a few minutes from now. I'm just planting the seed. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I can tell you that like, we, you know, when we, when they've, when they've asked us to do an event, we could say, um, you know, maybe instead of a lunch, do a dinner because we'll get more people because, you know, at certain times, especially pre-pandemic, everybody's working so hard. They were going back and forth between, you know, they were at the office and, you know, they might not be able to, to step away from the office for a big, long lunch. You know, the watch lunches and dinners tend to be long in their format. And maybe it's better to do a dinner than a lunch. Or maybe it's better to do drinks on a dinner. And they, you know, we found that when they take our advice, we're able to get more important people in the room. Maybe we needed to get an, uh, you know, a special influencer there to cover it from a social point of view. Maybe we need to get a celebrity involved. And when they take that advice, um, you know, the, the, the end result of the event tends to be better. On the on the other side of the spectrum, when we're thinking about what 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 we know is a disaster, I cannot for the life of me come up with an example right now, but I, I, in my, I know there is one and I will keep thinking about it. And maybe we can, if I think of it before we get off this podcast, I'll let you know. Okay. What about PR disasters, right? Because the classic thing is a company does something wrong or there's a misunderstanding, or maybe there's even a scandal. And then the PR people have to come in to fix things up. This happens of course, in politics and, and, you know, corporations, all day long, but how often are you engaged in, I guess, what you call damage control? Well, we 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 call it crisis uh, management in, in the okay. Okay. Um, you know terminology. But I have to say, I, I feel uh, lucky that I have not 
um, found myself in that situation with a watch client yet. I have had it with many other clients, um, mostly in the fashion space. They're the ones that have made the, have, as you said, fumbled, and we've had to do some some cleanup work. But like, what are we talking about? Like, what would be a fumble? Like, I just I want people to understand some of the real world stories. Okay, sure. Well, you know, I was the spokesperson for Abercrombie and Fitch from like the late nineties until the early two thousand. Okay, I didn't know that. Yep. And I used to, you know, and it was, I was here at the agency, but I would function as the company spokesperson. And, you know, they would, they were at the time they had this publication called the ANF quarterly, which was, which was basically a catalog and a magazine combined together. It was a beautiful print, um, basically a book that came out quarterly. Right. Um, and they tended to have, you know, um, it was, you know, it was a chronicle of the college experience, which was their target demographic at the time. And we would have, you know, it was Bruce Weber who shot it. And it was um, a guy, uh, amazing artistic director named Sam Shahid, who put it together with Mike Jeffries, who was then CEO. But it would come out with, you know, uh, almost naked um, boys and girls uh, <laughs> in photos that were, were highly artistic, as I would say, but maybe at the time, you know, maybe pre-euphoria were quite scandalous. And I'd have to, uh, you know, I'd have to do the rounds of the media, you know, defending uh, our position on that magazine. Which what was-, was the defense? What, like, what did you say? Like, there's, you know, uh, as you said, scantily clad youths. What was yeah. the response? I would say that if you walk on a college campus, this is at the time, nothing you see in this magazine, it, I mean, it would, it would, if you look at this magazine, then nothing you would see on a college campus would surprise you. Um, so <laughs> that was sort of our defense. Well, what year was this? Because I remember for me in college in the early 2000s, it was uh, Ugg boots and a lot of like, um, those like track pants and matching jackets. There was, that was, that was the <laughs> uniform for the ladies. Amazing. Well, this was um, this was the time uh, I would say late '90s into the early 2000s. Okay, so about, around the same time. Around the same yeah. time. Yeah, maybe just before, but it was around the same time. So it, it was, was just it was just a complaint. Nobody got into trouble or anything like that. It was just a perception that you had to change people's minds about. Well, you know, they came out with a series of T-shirts that we would now would be you know really. It would, at the time, you know, we were sort of pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook. And they came out with a series of T-shirts. One was, um, I, I remember it very well. It's it's all relative in West Virginia. Um, and another T-shirt that was, was I would say, racist. And you know, Wait, was, Abercrombie had this? Yes. Oh, it was it's all relative parts. in West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would think I was, it was almost like a precursor to the meme culture that we see today, you know, like all these great and people, you know, the one thing I have to say it was, is, it was the ironic t-shirt. That's what it is. Yeah. And people, you know, you, people are generally have good. I mean, I'm always surprised how great people, some people's sense of humor is. And that was really the, the, the gist of these t-shirts, but you know, we, I'd have to, you know, defend them. And they, you know, I think, I think it would have been, if these teachers were launching today, if it was, you know, I think with, with Instagram and Facebook, all of social media, really, it would be a big, it would be very challenging to defend the position of the company. Um, but we were doing it when we were basically dealing with, you know, some online coverage and broadcast coverage. So it was not as challenging as it is today because today, you know, you know, what, what is great, the great equalizer is that every person who has a phone has a voice. 
Um, and at the time we were defending Abercrombie was not the case. Now, that's a very interesting point because you began your career in the sort of, well, it wasn't the pre-internet era, but it was the it was an era before everyone was online, definitely before social media and, and really just the beginning of the web 2.0. And then your career as it proceeded, uh, the internet and all those new things associated with it came into light. How have you been able to update your own policies and practices given what's going on? Like, has that been a challenge? Is it sort of like same story, new platforms? I'm just really curious how, how it was for you personally, you know, probably in the mid-2000s when you probably looked around, you're like, oh my gosh, my industry is really changing. Well, I mean, it, it's both easier and more difficult. Um, if you, and I say more di- more easier, maybe because it's, everything moves much more quickly. And it, you know, I, I mean, I'll tell you how I go back to when we used to loan slides out for imagery, as rather than sending like a high res, you know, or you know, a, a, we transfer a link to the updated imagery. We used to we used to loan slide photographic slides to publications for for um for their content and now you know it's easy as clicking a couple of uh, buttons on your computer and you uh, you know you've delivered all the you know the press releases and press material to to the media and you know that i mean think about your experience going through watches and wonders i mean you used to go with suitcases to carry all the catalogs and the swag and everything else back to the and then you do, there was a there was even a, a an office there where you could um where you could give your information, um, uh, your all your swag to um, be shipped back, um, and that now is quite, quite, quite different. Um, you know, it's all electronic, which I think is is more sustainable, obviously, and it's faster. So it's both easier and and more difficult at the same time. Not all of your colleagues have been able to keep up, and we've definitely seen. Um, I remember at least about ten years ago, a lot of the agencies that weren't really quite, you know, cut out for the modern era, changed their business or retired or whatever. Um, and a small number of agencies, including yours, Paul Wilmot, um, were able to take a lot more market share. Um, was it just sort of consistency and then business flowed to you? Or did you do something uh, assertive to position yourself a little bit more strongly in the new era? Because again, I think you'll agree, there was a transitional time. Mm, I totally agree. And I would say, I wish I were so smart. Um, but I think it's what is, it's, you know, the, the, you know, we've, one of the reasons we are where we are now is, you know, people have moved within the industry, which is what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. You know, somebody leaves, you know, one brand and goes on the other brand. Most of the time they want to take their, the team they know with them. And that has been, you know, a, a, a wonderful opportunity for the agency to work with new brands because we, some people have been very loyal to us. Uh, in their partnership, and as they've moved from brand to brand, they've 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 taken us with them, which is really great. The other part of the new business really is based on the the body of the work. Um, you know, if, if 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 our competitors start to see you know a a lot of press around a client that we're working with, then they, they of course they're they'll be curious and say, well, who's representing? Hublot, for example, and they'll want to work with, you know, with the team that works on Hublot based on the results they're getting for that brand. So it's, it's you know, they're, too, they're really, and, you know, and then, like I said earlier, too, the, and it's something to be so proud of, really, is the fact that we get a lot of our business um, through referrals from the media. And that's, 
I mean, that's what warms your heart, really, is the fact that somebody, you know, out there who writes about watches, you know, when when asked by uh, a brand who's on you know, maybe doing an agency search or looking for, you know, a new uh, partner, he, they say, go with these guys. They know what they're doing. And that's, that, that's amazing. Now, let's talk about events for a little bit, because you and I have been on a number of events together. Uh, and there were sort of the golden age of events that happened a while ago. And I think maybe we'll get back to that. Obviously, the world is still a little bit away from doing the, the sheer volume of events and, 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 and the grandeur that was a few years ago. But how important are events to the modern practice of, of doing PR for luxury watch brands? Is it sort of a nice extra or is it absolutely crucial to the, uh, to the mission? I think it's absolutely crucial. I say so unequivocally. Um, it is so important to what we do. I mean, it not only does it, you know, galvanize, um, you know, the editors around a certain brand, but it deepens the relationship. It adds um, soulfulness to a watch brand. I mean, if you're just sitting there from an office, maybe in Switzerland, maybe in New York, wherever you are, sending out press releases to media to cover your watches, maybe loaning a sample every now and again to for them to to see firsthand, you've missed the whole reason we're here. I mean, you know, watches, I mean, every watch has personality. I mean, you know this better than anyone. Um, and And you can't describe a personality with a press release. You can't describe a personality with a picture. You have to create an event where we can celebrate and better understand what the watch is about, whether you're going, and I know brands have taken editors around the world and I, I you know, to the Galapagos Islands, to Stad, to you name it, they've gone there uh, and, and it becomes a, part of this the lore of the watch industry and i don't think without these events we would be where we are right now and i and i do agree with you there was a golden age but i think it is it is it is a we're back to the event you know post pandemic i think it is really important for these brands to bring editors from around the world together like we'll be doing at watches and wonders but bringing them to these these interesting locations to, to really talk about their watches in a very special way. it's I think it's crucially important. Now, in the internet world, people routinely mention opinions and comments and things like that about things that they've never seen before. And I think that's really important to mention because it goes to what you said, that when they don't see it, it's very difficult for them to form an opinion about it. How big of a problem is it to you personally that the internet is full of people making comments about things that they've never seen. Of course, they have the right to do it, but how destructive is it potentially to all the onlookers that see those comments, don't know what to make of it, when in reality, the the the, the knowledge that the person posting has is minimal at best? Right. Well, I mean, I think you, um, wait a second, the cream rises to the top. I mean, those in the industry who have the strongest voices are those who have the most knowledge about the watch industry and about watches specifically. And he can speak to, you know, the, the, the intricacies of a watch movement, um, and, or, you know, keep it as top line as the aesthetics of the watch. And I think that, it, you know, I think that the, the loudest voices are the most informed voices. And, you know, of course you're going to have this, you know, um, you know, periphery of people that are trying to weigh in on it because they see the, the, 
the passion that is that exists among the watch community, the core and the the periphery. I mean, even people who aren't part of our you know, the core avid passionate watch collectors and followers, there's still a there's a there's a there's also a halo around that core of people that are just that are think watches are cool, but maybe don't know how many you know parts are in a you know a, a complication, or maybe they're not really sure about the annual calendar versus the perpetual calendar. But they really love watches, so there's that audience too. But you know, I think that you know, if, you know, in a, in a symphony of voices, you know, the, maybe the violins are the most important, and they're the people like you that are super important and can talk about the you know the real the the real what it goes in what goes into making a great watch and why this watch is better than that watch for this reason versus that have you visited the gift store for watch lovers it's called the blog to watch store and we carry art apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the blog to watch store Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Now, Hublot has been uh, a brand that has been long associated with you. You've done a lot of things together with them, a lot of events and things like that. And it's a brand that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about in, in, in different directions. And I would say that in the watch lover community, there's been um, a very strange kind of, um, I'll call it almost prejudice against them. Uh, and these are people that probably have never seen the products um, and really only have an opinion based upon a certain type of marketing thing that they were doing. Talk a little bit about that strategy because then I'll sort of say this. When I when you see a new blow watch, you're like, wow, this is a great watch. These, you know, this company really cares about what they do. But if you've only ever experienced the brand from the outside, so to say, you can get a very different perspective. What was Hublot's strategy? Why did it look so weird to some watch lovers? I mean, obviously it was very successful for them. Um, just talk about that because I think it's very your perspective of that strategy is very different than that of a of a lay watch enthusiast who mm -hmm. you know tends to draw some strange conclusions. I just think that's a very sort of interesting example of of how your job is actually quite challenging. Oh well, you know I I think Hublot, it, you know it, it you're going to have an opinion about that brand for sure, and you know in in the in the PR world we say there's no such thing as bad press, you know. It's, it's, People are talking about you. They're talking about you. It means you know you're on on everyone's mind. I think Hublot is so interesting. Brands brand. don't agree though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's so interesting as a brand because of the the materials they use to 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 create and manufacture these watches. I mean, they've been so innovative and and in 
in their material use. And it's really makes, I think, this brand so special and so valuable to the overall watch industry. I mean, if you think about the the color sapphire that they're growing in the lab to make watches, you think about the, um, you know, the, the, cera- the colored ceramics that they're working with, the vibrant color ceramics that they work with. And just that it's a very innovative, you know, magic gold. I mean, it's incredible. The idea of like, an unscratchable gold. I mean, who would ever thought of that? They did. And they use it so effectively in, in the, in the brand. It's just, it's, it's to me that makes them so important to the overall watch industry. You know, that's, that's their sort of like, that's their, you know, point of difference, if you will. But let's, let's just be more practical about it. You go to an Hublot event yourself and you really are romanced by the brand. You mm-hmm. you see the product, you understand it. Like you said, you get uh, uh, an appreciation for the technical things that they do that no one else does. But if you see it from afar, you get a different perspective. Isn't that kind of funny? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, they're loud. You know, they're loud brand. Um, they are, you know, they have, they, they do unbelievably unexpected often collaborations um and they're you know like they're a very loud brand but you know i think that they um they 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 have they have a very important seat at the watch table and they're doing things that are very um avant-garde and interesting and i think that you know they should be proud of the incredible brand they've built and it is no small brand you know they have they have grown like a lot since just during the time we've worked with them. And it's so, it's so um, exciting to see the success that Hublot is having. And it's, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not, it is justified in my opinion. What, what was it like? Cause you, you've been working with them for a while. What was it like when Jean-Claude Biver, you know, sort of stepped down and retired? He didn't retire from the watch industry from Hublot. He sort of stepped down to let Ricardo take over um, his his lead general, so to say, and then he, I think it was he went over to Tag Heuer for a little while there. But how did things change internally without him? Because I think that a lot of people don't recognize that some of the most successful brands in the modern era, when it comes to luxury watches, were really run by highly charismatic personalities that were autocrats, but in sort of an effective way. And when they leave, it can create sometimes a vacuum. So what was it like internally there when he left sort of the day to day operations? Well, I mean, I would say it was it was seamless transition. I mean, you know, Mr. Guadalupe had, you know, been running the company, you know, with Mr. Rivera for so long that it was it there was there was not a single misstep in the transition. Um I would say in in my twenty-five years of working not just in the watch industry, but in the fashion and beauty industry as well, it seemed to me to be the most, you know, seamless transition of I've seen of leadership ever. And, you know, and, and, and to your point, it is because the, you know, they worked together for so long and, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was the, you know, the, the, the number two there for so long that it was, it was just, it was a natural and seamless transition um, from, from Biver to Mr. Guadalupe. So they did something right. It sounds like they had an actual transition plan where Ricardo was effectively the manager for a while prior to any announcement. But I've seen other brands lose leadership and it's sort of like everything they've done immediately. And I mean, immediately goes down the drain. I mean, you see, it's not even an important person, 
But sometimes the loss of just a marketing person or just a CEO sends a brand utterly upside down. I mean, we've seen that as well, right? Yeah, I mean... So, you know, one CEO has, um, you, know, a, a, you know, a direction they want to take a brand in and then the new guy comes in, a new guy or new woman comes in and they, 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 they take a 180 and it, you know, it gives everybody whiplash, you know what I mean? Everybody internally, externally, and we don't know what, like, what is going on here. So, yeah, I've seen that over, uh, over the years and this is certainly not the case with people. That was like, that was like... Couldn't have gone better. Now, does, do do you take that into your calculus when working with clients? Because again, you know, you want to deal with clients that are, you know, predictable and easy to work with and 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 function. Um, you know, oftentimes the funny thing about your job, it seems, is you spend as much time pitching to people like me as you do to your own clients. That's that's sort of exhausting. How you know? How do you take into consideration their management style or whatever? when you decide who to work with in terms of it's worth your time and effort? Uh, well, you know, I mean, ultimately, anybody in, in, in the PR world, a, a agency, speaking for agency, we're, you know, this is client servicing. You know, we're servicing our clients. So we have to, you know, we have to wear, uh, we have to have a lot of different personalities because we have to adjust our, you know, the way we speak, the way we, uh, you know, uh, interact with each client because each client is different. So, I mean, it's a little bit, schizophrenic at times um dealing with you know these different personalities if you will but um but it's also what makes our job so interesting and so much fun because you know we get to see inside these let's say individual you know worlds each brand is its own world or its own universe even and we get to see inside these universes and i and the, the thing about working in an agency with as many clients as we have in and out of the watch industry, it's it it is almost like we have a the ability to learn so much so quickly because we have this position of, of let's say we're a, a voyeur in all these different companies and when we do our job well we bring that perspective to all of our clients at least the clients who have a desire to 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 know about what's going on in these different industries and how best practices could be even better if they if they if they understand what works you know what's working in the beauty industry could be very applicable to what you know what we could do in the watch industry there's there could be a lot of you know of, of, of learnings for and shared you know information if, if they are receptive to it do you ever think to yourself oh what these watch brands are doing is actually easy and they're making great money i should do this as well or do you not want to get anywhere near that because it seems difficult and you're glad to help, but you admire the very challenging process of actually bringing your product to market? You know, it's such a great question. And it's something I haven't thought about. I, I was, I was, we were doing this event. I'm going back into the early 90s. We were working for Long and Zuna. And there was this amazing CEO at the time. So it was Fabian Crone. I bet you remember him. Um, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I was, we were doing this thing called the House of Longa, which was at the time, quite an innovative maybe you even came to that one it was up in the hills in beverly hills and we took over our house and did like a week's pr uh, programming of events something that is more commonplace now back then it was it was quite you know it was quite the scene and i was sitting with um the ceo after that uh one of the big dinners we had had that night i was talking to him i was like you know 
you're such a lucky guy. He's like, how so? I was like, you're the CEO of a, of a luxury watch brand. It's like, it's almost like the great white shark um, of, of CEOs because who wouldn't want to be CEO of a watch brand? It's just like the coolest thing in the world. At least it was to me. And if, so you know, to your point, of course I thought about, you know, wouldn't it be something to, to, to be able to, to have, you know, a voice in the, uh, in the, in the design, wouldn't that be amazing? But, you know, I, I chose my path. I'm, you know, like I said, 25 years into down my path, if you will. And I don't know that, you know, I, I like to think that what, what we've done has, as you know, has been a, maybe will be, a, maybe it'll be a, not a chapter in the book of the watch industry, but maybe it'll be a couple paragraphs in a great chapter. But I think we, you know, what we're doing is bringing a lot of value to these clients. And um, while, you know, we're not, you know, inside the walls of the manufacturer, we, we still have, we still play a vital role in the overall industry. What are some of the ideas you've had if you were going to start a watch brand? I mean, you've dealt with everything from very modern watches. I know that you personally like vintage watches, but I think that every watch liver that sort of puts in enough time eventually comes back with a feeling of if I was going to be a watch brand, it's going to be like this. It's not just aesthetics. It's, you know, what sells and what makes sense and what you can build a story around. You know, what would what would Hampton's watch brand be like, especially given what you know about the practical side of, of marketing a luxury watch brand? Wow, that's such an awesome question. And it's something, I mean, I have thought about it over the years, you know, and they always say in our industry, uh, like everybody has a collection in them, you know, like one fashion collection. Like they say, everybody has a, a book in them, you know? Um, at least one, at least one. Uh, may, well, maybe, at least one, exactly. So, you know, I don't, what would my brand look like? I think, you know, when I think of what I, what gets me excited in the industry now is is things that you see like Moser doing, which is these wacky PR stunt watches, if you will, that are beautifully made. I love I love that aesthetic. But what what my, my brand might look like, because we're speaking totally in the hypothetical, I would I would I would do something that is way seventies. I like these. Um, you know, and I know everybody's going back to that era because it's, you know, one of the great eras of watchmaking, but, um, it would be very seventies. Um, and it would look, it would, you know, I, I'd have integrated bracelets. I do all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, it's hard to describe in a, in a, in a podcast format, but you know, I, there is a great watch, um, maybe a drop from Hampton that if somebody wants to work with me on that, <laughs> I, I can I could get into more detail. Oh, I see you're getting <laughs> excited about it already. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I don't. I, I like I said, I I'm 25 years down my path, and I know my lane in this industry. I like I I like to think we bring a lot of value, and I I you know maybe maybe I should defer to the great Swiss watch designers and makers, allow them to 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 continue to do the amazing work that they do. I have to say, you know, I'm you know working with seven brands currently i think it's seven brands we you know i i love them all individually like i said they're like children you you can never pick your favorite but um the 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 even the brands outside that, that you know our competitors represent or that are managed in-house i you know i have such i could I, I always say i could find at least a watch from every single brand out there that i would be really proud to wear and again, I want to go back to the question of when you decide to represent a brand today, of course, the aesthetics of the brand and your ability to, you know, enthusiastically speak about it are, of course, 
part of the decision-making criteria. But but what do you look like in potential clients, look at in potential clients? Because again, I know that there's more people that need, quote unquote, help in the US. And I think it's important to clarify that, that while there is an international component to what you do, for the most part, you are doing, you know, uh, a focus on the U.S. market. So, you know, what what are some of the pros and cons in, in terms of, uh, you know, do you want to work with the brand? And this is outside of, you know, them being able to pay their bills, of course. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I I feel like I've I have really something in every area right now that we're currently working with. So I'm not looking to bring on any new watch clients. I want to make that super clear, um, but um, you know, there are a lot of brands out there that I truly admire. And, you know, given the circumstances, we'll be absolutely thrilled to to be the, you know, the press representative for that brand. I think what we look for, obviously, are, you know, will their products fit into the mag? Will they excite the media? Will they fit into the editorial, um, you know, um, pillars that are already established with the industry? Or will they create a new um, opportunity, which could be very exciting? You know, are we, you know, as, as we as we start to really get excited about the metaverse, you know, with you know even like Decentraland doing a fashion uh, week this week in the in their metaverse, like where are those opportunities? Would a brand can you know that that's the kind of stuff that gets us excited? It would be like the opportunity we would look for look for in any new business. But you know, we're, we're like I said, we're we we love we have our children. We we love our children, and we're really happy with the family we've created here. You know, but you know, obviously things will change, and you know, you know, nothing lasts forever. Um, and we're always looking for opportunities to do something like super different. Um, it sounds like a brand's interest in quote unquote doing something is really important because I'm getting the sense that there's certain brands that go to you or any PR agency with the sort of vague idea that I need PR representation, but are actually antagonistic to the process in a way that makes it difficult to do your job. It is, is I, Again, I could be wrong, but is it true that there are certain clients that actually put more handcuffs on you than they actually liberate you? Well, it's yes. Um, a, a lot of times, I'd say the majority of the times, we are presented with a concept that's fully fleshed out, let's say it's the cake is baked. And so we are delivered that cake and we, you know, we, we, we might be able to, to make a recommendation on how it should be cut so that it's, it's more palatable, if you will, for the media. But, you know, it's the cake that they baked. It's like they, you know, they have, you know, their strategy laid out. We're just brought in to help execute it based on the relationships we've built with the media. And that's fine. You know, we we can do that. We can take orders perfectly well. But it's really exciting when you're in on the, if we're going with the cake analogy, in on the, you know, we can, maybe we should add some extra vanilla to the batter. Maybe it needs more sugar. Maybe, you know, we should do a strawberry icing instead of vanilla. And it makes that cake just so much better. And that's really fun because then we're in on the ground, uh, from, the, from the ground up and we can have uh, a voice in, and, and or they say, physician, heal thyself. You know, we can put a few ingredients into that cake that are very interesting to the media, very PRable, and it makes for a, I think a, a better cake. I mean, it's you know, it's it's part of it's it's 
you know, that's how we add the storytelling element into it that we know the media will respond to as opposed to having this, you know, strategy fully fleshed out and built and say, now, you know, now go do this. You know, it's it's two different conversations. Yeah, we, we can do both, but one's more interesting than the other. What is the strategy of getting these mostly, you know, foreign and mostly parts of Europe brand managers to listen to common sense about what to do in the American market? I've always found this this issue to be interesting. Um, watch brand managers have a reputation as being control freaks, which mm-hmm. I guess makes sense in a factory environment where you have to protect every little parameter. But in the marketing sense, that does, doesn't always work that well. What's the strategy of getting them to say, you know what, Hampton, it's your country. It's a market you understand better. I'm not going to try to control this. I'm going to sort of just go with what you say. Like, why is that as difficult as it seems to be? Well, I mean, I can talk on both sides of that. Um debate really i can say number one <clears throat> when you're when you're when you're communicating about a international swiss based international luxury watch brand there has to be a singular voice behind that brand that is you know resonates i mean it, well it should resonate around the world but it should be a singular voice it should be you know everyone should fall into lockstep behind that strategy and i think that you know you see some of the great brands out there, they've done just that. But if I, if I put my, you know, move, move my chair to the other side of the table, I could say every market is different. And the U.S. market is, 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 is very different. And where we get information now is very different. You know, where, you know, we are, you know, I think maybe a little bit ahead of the curve on social. I think that the, the, you know, Europe is certainly caught up to us and, but, you know, that we have to, it, it's important. Social media is a very important part of any, like you know, three hundred and sixty, you know, um, PR campaign. Or so there needs to be some flexibility to adapt to market to market to market, but using the established language of the brand, which I think should be uh, one voice that's used globally. Is that? I mean, again, this goes into sort of a deeper philosophical discussion that may be out the bounds of the interest of the listeners, but why exactly do they need a singular voice? Like a lot of corporations are many different things to many different people, depending on the consumer. Why is luxury so obsessed with we are one thing to everyone, no matter if that makes sense or not? You know, I don't know if I, we will get to the answer to that question, but I think that, you know, you have to stand for something. And if you're, you know, if your point of entry is the most luxurious leather goods brand in the world there are descriptives that describe your brand that should be used as your you know your brand language and you shouldn't deviate from that no matter what market you're in that should be universal mm-hmm. um you know things in luxury in my opinion you know should be universal i mean the use of diamonds the use of you know precious metals i mean that that should be universal when you're talking about luxury brands. But the way that you speak to the audience can be adapted to the culture of the market, but you should still, uh, you know, fall back to your, you know, your, your, your pillars. If you okay. Will. So you're saying same message, but different way of conveying it. There you go. You okay. See, 
you, <laughs> perfect song. <laughs> it's my job. Conversation. Yeah. Again, I I feel that someone who is in a marketing degree program or something related to that in college should ideally be listening to stuff like this because I've I've I'm sure you as have as well, but I've lectured at classes before in in the world of marketing. And the people going into it have absolutely no clue what's in store for them. And I'm sure that you see that way. You know, you've you've hired a lot of juniors and things like that, um, probably out of school or or maybe a little bit of agency experience. Like, and and again, I want to wrap up this discussion by hearing some some experiences from you and maybe even tips. Like, how do you train a novice associate who's just new to PR and marketing? And what would you say out there to the people that are really, really romanced by the luxury space, probably the watch space, but don't really understand it from the outside. Like, you know, give some words of wisdom here because again, there's there seems to be more wrong ways to do it than right ways to do it. Well, you make a great point. So, well, you know, and I, I don't describe myself as a marketing expert. I'm really a, a, a publicist at heart. And I'm, you know, I am a media relations person and I really value deeply the role that the media plays, uh, especially in this earned media space, which is what public relations really is. You know, we have to, we have to convince um, the editor that this is the best thing since sliced bread. And often it's because it is, (laughs) but I would say, you know, when I'm looking to bring in new team members into the, into the, into the agency to work on watch brands, the, the number one, thing we look for is really a a passion for watches and they may not know that they have a passion for watches until they until they get a little bit of exposure to some of these great brands their histories their their innovation um and the 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 eternal uh, the let's say you know mr bivari say you know a watch is eternal you know it it is forever and that is really special and not a lot of industries can can claim that and the watch industry certainly can. So you want to find people that if they, if they, if they, if they're passionate about watches, great, let's get them in, let's train them up, you know, teach them the, the one oh ones, the two oh ones, the three oh ones, the four oh ones on watch watches and watchmaking and what goes into making a fine luxury timepiece. And if maybe it lets, you know, give them a couple of questions and see if there is, you know, this latent passion for watches. And that's great too, because then you can train them up and teach them again the 101s and so on of, of watchmaking. If there is no interest in this industry, they are they're sure to fail and they should we we should look at other industries for them to work in. Maybe it's beauty, maybe it's fashion, maybe it's corporate banking PR. We don't know. But it's um certainly something that there has to be and if not a love for watches and appreciation for watches in order to be successful at our job. So you're looking to train people who have or could have basically enthusiasm, which is contagious. They mm-hmm. need to be excited about it. And there's really no specific way of getting someone else you know, excited. It's just being around them. So if your staff is excited and spends enough time with the editor, with the whoever it is, then you feel that that's enough um, to ensure success enough of the time. Well, it's, it's certainly a key ingredient. Um, another ingredient would be, a, you know, a real communicator, someone who can, you know, who can communicate, um, from something they've learned from, you know, going on a factory tour, communicate that, that they've learned 
in a, in a very eloquent way to an editor. You know, if you're, if you're fumbling for, for your words and you can't describe, you know, the way a watch is put together, the way a watch functions, then you're not going to be good at your job in this specific industry. So you have to be able to communicate. And, and I think the sort of another ingredient that's equally as important is you have to great, have a great personality. I mean, you, you and I both, we've been doing this for so long and we've been in so, we've been around so many dinner tables together. We've been on so many trips together. You know, it, if you don't have a great personality, like, I don't want you to come on my trip. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, this is, you know, I want somebody who's, who is, you know, smiling and excited about it, not somebody who's disgruntled and upset about it. So personality plays a big role in it too. You know, maybe a, even a more important role, as long as there's a bit of passion for watches, everything else you can learn. That's really great advice. And I think that that's absolutely been something that I've seen in, in your staff is that they're, they're nice people to be around. They're helpful. They're engaging. Even after a hard day of travel, they're, they're still smiling and stuff like that. And, and you're right. You have, to, you have to look for that because you could be really great at your job. But if you have a bad disposition, this is, um, this is a relationship industry. And that's really what it's been about. And again, those events, those dinners, the invitations that you get, um, are a tool that you and the brands have because people want to be invited and things like that. So you're, it's like you're not trying to create a popularity contest, but at the end of the day, you're you're effectively saying to the the editors of the world, if you're not fun to have dinner with, we're not going to invite you to things very often, right? Yeah, we'll still send you the press release and the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just want to spend a few hours with your dinner, and those European dinners are long. They can be like five hours long, right? Oh, you know we we've done them right, and it, and I and I love it, and that's you know that's the joy of this business, and that was the that was the unexpected joy of this business was getting to know so many great people. I mean, you know, it's like a, I I was talking to a client, I was saying, you know, these the watch editors editors. It's like it's like a candy shop of personalities. You know, you have to, you know, you have, there's a lot of different, you know, personalities here, and it's really fun to be able to engage with so many different people. And you know, I, I and another thing is, I we're in this we're in a service to the media. You know, if we if we don't service the media, we're not doing our job. So we have to make your job easier. That's for sure. But it's what 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 the surprise is is how much we learn from sitting with people like you and the other great watch media in the industry. I, I think I, not, I don't teach because I don't teach. I convey as much information as I receive. I learn every meeting that we have with you, with other people at SHH. I, and I think I've said this to you over the years. Wow. I didn't know that. I just learned something. And wow, isn't that awesome? Because if you're not learning, then it's so boring. Last question. And thank you for all that is, how has all that learning and all that understanding that you've you've been fortunate enough to receive um, influenced and affected you as a watch collector? Because you you still buy watches, uh, new watches and, and old watches, um, many from your clients, not every single one from your clients. Um, how do you think that that experience has enriched your um, existence as an enthusiast and as a, a consumer? First of all, the experience, like you know, if, if in your in your in your personal life if you're a watch person i mean how often do you do you engage with somebody who could talk to you about watches for an hour i say never 
I mean, you the the and I could talk about watches. You could talk about watches for hours on end. And when you find somebody that shares that same passion, that's just awesome. Because you know we can talk about references and what's the you know the new value and uh, can we get this? And it's like so much fun. And that's part of the pleasure I have of working in the watch industry. Is this is is back basically being able to engage with like-minded people who like to talk about watches. How lucky are we? I mean, we found, we found my, my grandfather used to say, if you love your work, then it's not work. It's, it's actually enjoyable. And I have to say, I love my work in the watch industry because it's not work. It's really a passion. And you loved it enough that you, you bought the agency because that's kind of a funny thing. You, you own an agency, with someone else's name, Mr. Paul Wilmot, uh, who used to be part of it. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's, a that's a major signal of your enthusiasm for what you do that you, you know, you started out working there and then you ended up, um, acquiring it. Um, you know, that's, that's definitely uncommon. So, you know, we're, we're out of time. Um, I've been speaking to, uh, Mr. Hampton Carney. He's the CEO and owner of Paul Wilmot Communications. Uh, they currently represent uh, a whole host of really great watch brands. Hampton, thank you so much for your time. Oh my gosh, Errol, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you on our next watch adventure. Likewise. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>